0: James 4 is going to tell us uh, some key things about how we win the battle, how we experience the grace of God. If you pick up James 4 and verse 6, here's where we ended last time. It says, he, James 4, 6, but he, God, gives a greater grace. Grace is a beautiful word in uh, Greek. It's charis. It's spelled C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, charis. And it speaks of God's goodness and benevolence. When we think of salvation, we, we know we're saved by grace. It's a free gift. But the grace that saves us is also the grace that sustains us and gives us the ability to fight victoriously. So Paul, when he was praying about that thorn in his flesh, heard these words from the Lord in 2 Corinthians twelve nine where he said, my grace is sufficient for you. He's not speaking about salvation grace, but strengthening grace. For my strength or my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says these words, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's an interesting dynamic in the Christian life, and it's something that you discover as you go, that when you're weak, then you're strong. And here's why. Because your reliance upon Jesus, your uh, aptitude, if you will, to go to the throne of grace is probably going to happen more when you're not feeling the strongest. And so when you're weak and when you feel like you you can't figure it out and you don't have the means or the wisdom to do it, it drives you to God. And the Lord uses those kinds of things to shower us with grace. Some years ago, Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, said, the most powerful idea that's entered the world in the last few thousand years is the idea of grace. It's the reason I would like to be a Christian. Now, this is some years ago. And I think what happened with Bono, and I don't know all the details, but Bono confessed he was a Christian. I think he walked away for a while, and I don't know if it had to do for moral reasons or what was going on in his life at the time. But I believe I've watched an interview since, and he seems like he's returned to the Lord. But be that as it may, he says in this quote, he says, Though, as I said to The Edge, the U2 guitarist one day, I sometimes feel more like a fan. He says, The idea of grace is the reason I would like to be a Christian, though, as I said to The Edge one day, sometimes I feel more like a fan rather than actually in the band. I can't live up to it. But the reason I would like to is the idea of grace. It's really powerful. It's something that's really unknown, even in other world religions, because other world religions really teach that you get something because you did something. But God's grace is God's goodness and benevolence simply because he wants to shower it upon us. But I do want to qualify something and say to you that there is a way of accessing grace, not so much a work, but so much as putting yourself in a posture to receive it. In other words, God wants to dispense grace, but if you're going to get grace, you've got to put yourself in a position to receive it. If you ignore the things of God, if you walk around in puffed up pride, if you don't read your Bible, you don't pray, you don't go to church, the ways that God dispenses grace are going to be limited to you because you're not accessing them. Maybe a simple way to put it is, if the faucet is uh, pouring out the grace, if you don't position yourself like this to receive it, you're, gonna get, you're not going to get much. So you got to go to your Bible. you got to go to prayer. You've got to access the things where you can receive grace. You, can go, you have to go to the throne of grace available to us 24-7. But we got to go there. This early church that James is addressing obviously had issues. They were fighting. They were fighting for positions. They were wounding one another with their words. James chapter 3. Pride was penetrating their fellowship. They were lusting. They were praying in the wrong way for selfish reasons. And James, I I was up in Idaho visiting a friend this last week, and we had a chance to go to the radio station where uh, Walk in Truth is broadcast in the Spokane, Washington, and northern Idaho area. So we went to this little radio station, and it's called KYMS 89.9 in northern Idaho. And the station is actually beneath an old church. It's a really interesting spot. And we talked to a couple of the guys. Lee is the station owner, uh, along with a, another lady. And uh, Chris is like a morning host. And Chris said, yeah, the book of, you're studying the book of James. And he goes, you know, another name for the book of James is the book of Frank. Because James is very Frank, isn't he? <laughs> and I said, I'm Italian. I know a lot of Franks. But... But that's James, right? He's just very frank. He's just really right to the point, in your face, in your kitchen. But maybe that's what we need to listen. A lot of you have come up to me and said, man, I'm really enjoying the book of James. And sometimes after you walk away, I'm like, really? (laughs) You're enjoying this book? (laughs) But I know what you mean. You're growing through it. You're being challenged. And don't we need to be challenged in Proverbs 4, excuse me in uh, James 4 verse 6 he's quoting you might want to note this Proverbs 334 God is opposed to the proud so if you don't want to get grace if you want to get God's opposition there's the formula but he gives what grace to the humble that's the posture of receiving a greater amount of grace is humility And humility is so hard. The moment that you think you've got it, you lost it. (laughs) Right? It's like the guy who won the most humble man of the year award and they gave him a t-shirt and he wore it and he wasn't the most humble man of the year anymore. Right? That's just how it works with humility. It's a tricky thing. One summer afternoon, a bird flew through the open window into a chapel where a service was being conducted. Full of fear, it flew backwards and forward near the ceiling and against the windows, vainly seeking a way out into the sunshine. In one of the pews sat a lady who observed the bird while thinking how foolish it was not to fly out through the open door into liberty. At last, the bird's strength being gone, it rested a moment on one of the rafters. Then seeing the open door, it flew out into the sunshine, venting its joy in a song. Then the lady who had been watching the little bird thought to herself, am I not acting as foolish as, that, as I thought that bird was? How long have I been struggling under the burden of my sin in the vain endeavor to get free? And all the while, the door of God's grace has been opened wide. Then and there, a decision was informed to enter in. Pride will shut the door. It will cause you to miss the open doors to grace. You won't access them because you don't think you need them. But when you have a moment, an epiphany, if you will, of how much you need grace, and sometimes it's in the lowest moments of your life, you find doorways, sometimes new doorways to freedom. It's unexpected, but this is the way God works. And so in these few verses, in James 4, verses 7 through 10, we're going to get a little bit more about how we access grace. What are the keys? Here's verse 7, James 4. It says, submit, therefore, to God. Notice the words, therefore, are in light of verse 6 and what has come before it. If you want to access this grace, you've got to submit to God. Submit, therefore, to God. If you want the grace, you've got to submit. The word submit is "hupatasso" in Greek, and it's a military uh, word to fall into rank, to listen to God's commands as your general, as your leader, and do them. To say, whatever you say, Lord, that's what I'll do, because I am in, I'm under your rank. Whatever my leader says, that's what I'm going to do. Submit to God. That's a key to receiving grace. Fall under rank. You might say, well, how do you submit, Pastor Michael? Very simple. Very simple. Start your day by saying, Lord, I belong to you. I am a servant of the king and the kingdom. I want to put on the full armor of God by grace. Make me what you want me to be today. Fill me with your spirit. Lead these feet where you want them to go. Take this mouth and use it for your purposes. Uh, Use these eyes in the right direction. Open my ears to your truth. Lead my feet to share the good news of the gospel. Submit, enlist under God. You've got to make a decision. If you list enlist in the military, you don't just decide what your day is going to look like, right? You get up when they say to get up. When they say jump, you say how high, right? And you make your bed in the morning. And all God's people said, amen, <laughs> right? And there are certain expectations because you have enlisted. Well, as a Christian, you've enlisted under God. So enlist under God. If you want the devil to flee from you, you must enlist under God. Sometimes people take verse 7 and they take part B. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's true, but you're not going to resist the devil until you submit to God. Amen? And the idea of submitting to God Another military metaphor is this. It's put on the, what? Full armor of God. That you might take your stand against the schemes of the devil. We are in a spiritual battle. Whether you believe it or not, some of you have gotten really close to seeing that spiritual battle. Sometimes it's more, uh, maybe, We can sense it in deeper ways at certain times than others. But if you are going to resist the devil, you must submit to God. Submission to the spirit instead of the flesh. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. F.B. Meyer says the only hope of decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Or as John the Baptist put it in John 3.30, He must increase. I must decrease. These are the winning formulas. This is the battle plan. It's so different than the world. It's humility and submission. The devil is a master, I heard Alistair Begg say recently, at exploiting our wounded pride. The devil is a master at exploiting our wounded pride. And so we walk around as Christians, oftentimes defeated, because we don't want to admit to God that we need help. We don't want to say, maybe I'm not doing so well in this spiritual battle. Maybe I've fallen into a habitual sin pattern, or I've gotten away from my Bible, or I'm not walking in the Spirit as I should. And there's a simple remedy. Go back to your father. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, says David, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet he does. And he says, if you'll just humble yourself, you will get all the grace that you need. There are two bookends in the text that we should take note of. Submit to God is verse 7. And then verse 10 is the second bookend, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. So if you see these two commands or exhortations as bookends, then what goes in between we can see is the the various steps. There are three couplets in between the two bookends of matching commands in between. Arkane Hughes says the Greek language is even more clipped so that the commands that follow come in jackhammer burst. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Some people say, Has the devil actually tempted me before? I don't know if Satan actually has ever been involved in a temptation for me personally or you. I don't know. But I know he has demonic forces, and I know ultimately they're under his charge or sway. And I know he is called the tempter in the Scriptures. And I can see in Genesis 3, when he tempted our first parents with lies. With saying, oh, you don't, you don't have everything you think you have. If you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll become as God's. Promises, promises. And he, he makes you look at the dangling forbidden fruit and says, oh, just take a bite. Things will be better for you. And we wonder what our first parents were doing near that tree to begin with. What was Adam doing? What was Eve doing? Not resisting the devil, playing with fire. The word resist in verse seven is an interesting word. It's another military word And it means to stand against or oppose, to withstand or to resist. Brothers and sisters, we are in a battle. We have to understand the nature of the battle. It's a battle between flesh and spirit, between heaven and hell, if you will. And you are on the winning team. The war has been won. Amen. But the battle still wages. Satan is a loser in the ultimate sense, but he's still uh, going about as a roaring lion, seeking those he can devour, 1 Peter 5.8. We were talking last night at the house, and it struck me as conversation was going on that the command to submit to God and resist the devil is not only individual, but corporate. Please hear what I'm about to say. This church was losing to the influence of Satan, where they were now fighting each other, they were lusting for power, they were depending on demonic wisdom, they were wounding one another, and there is a corporate command in James 4, 7. Collectively, corporately, we need to submit to God and resist the devil. Example, if if a people in the church don't have submission going on, for example, in marriage or to church leadership or in other contexts of the world. If we sit here and say, I'm submitted to God, but we can't submit in our earthly relationships where it's legitimate and appropriate, then are we submitted to God? Or is that just simply words? Yeah, I'm submitted to the Lord, but I won't listen to my boss. I'm submitted to the Lord, but I won't obey the law. Are you then? You see, there are other implications and the corporate implication, the whole church implication is this. If we don't collectively submit to God, we give a foothold to the enemy to get into the church. And he does it. We give him a foothold with unresolved anger and petty fights. We're in a struggle. 1 Peter 5.9 says, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Jonathan Edwards said, The best protection one can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. One of the devil's primary purposes is to separate God and man. If he can cause the Christian to lean on his own ability and pride and strength, he is won. I want to show you a battle scene. Turn to the book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, second book of your Bible. Exodus 17, familiar story. The children of Israel have crossed the Red Sea. They've sung the song of Moses, Exodus 17. God uh, describes himself as Yahweh Rapha, their healer. He says, if you follow me in my ways, then I will not put the same diseases that I put on the uh, Egyptians. God gives them manna in Exodus 16, the bread of heaven, if you will, that comes down and feeds them. In the first part of Exodus 17, they don't have water. They cry about it, and Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out miraculously. Right after those miracles and the nation kind of getting its feet Grounded, if you will, after they test the Lord, they say in Exodus 17:7, 7, is the Lord among us or not? Are you kidding me? <laughs> How much do you need to see? Ten plagues weren't enough for you, the opening of the Red Sea wasn't enough for you, the drowning of the Egyptian army wasn't enough for you. The manna from heaven, the water from the rock, how many miracles do you need to see? Just one more. Just one more. Here's what happens. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses Exodus 17:9 said to Joshua, "Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill. With the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him, fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Verse 12 Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands. We need friends, we need brothers, we need sisters in Christ when we get tired. It's another way that God dispenses grace is through the body of Christ. One was on his one side, the one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. And so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, verse 15, and named it, The Lord is My Banner. Many of you have heard this. It's Jehovah Nissi, N-I-S-S-I, or Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is My Banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek, or the Amalekites, from generation to generation. Everybody look at your Bible and notice the altar that Moses erected was named Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. There's a lot of studies that have been done on the Hebrew word here. Nisi, it can mean refuge, it can mean help, it can mean the Lord is my victory, the Lord is my help, the Lord is my refuge. Um, You can think of a banner, it's translated the Lord is my banner, where Uh, ancient armies would fight under the banners uh, or the flags of their gods. So they would have something that would be a symbol of their god on the flag or the banner. They would march out. The children of Israel marched behind the ark quite often. And Nisi, interestingly enough, could be rendered, the Lord is the one I lean on. Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is the one I lean lean on. Who do you lean on? I was talking with Dr. Green, a good friend who studies the Hebrew language, and he said, you know, after you discover that that may well be what Nisi means, the Lord is the one I lean on. Everybody wants to break out. Lean on me when you're not strong. Come on. I help you Carry on. Okay, that's enough. Anyway. This is what James is saying. If you want to win the battle, you must lean on the Lord. Who have you been leaning on? I think our lives will show that reality just by what's been happening. Back to the book of James. If you lean on the Lord, if you submit to God, the devil will flee from you. That's a promise. It's a guarantee. If you submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. When Jesus was facing Satan in the temptation we all know about, Jesus' main weapon against the devil was what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And three times when Satan tempted Jesus, here's how you do it, folks. Jesus responded, It is written. He showed us that in the moment, if you want to win battles against the enemy, you stand upon the Word of God. Interestingly enough, in Ephesians six seventeen, when it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not logos for word. It's rhema. And the word rhema in Greek means a specific word for a specific moment to a specific need. In other words, it's not any Bible verse at that moment. It's the right Bible verse. So if the enemy's coming at you and saying, you're worthless, then you quote, I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. If the enemy says, you aren't even worth loving, you can quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Or Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. It's a rhema word in the moment against the enemy, and he will flee. And after three temptations and three responses from the word, using the sword, the master swordsman showed us how to do it. The devil fled from him. And waited, here's the caveat, for a more opportune time. Just because he flees doesn't mean he won't be back. It's not just one battle. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, I use the sword. Let's put that away. I don't need my Bible anymore. I'll just, uh, no, 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 no. This is an ongoing battle. But the battle belongs to the Lord. And all you have to do is access his resources, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Look at verse 8. We've only done one verse. That shouldn't surprise any of us. (laughs) Verse 8. Draw near to God if you want to experience this grace, and he will what? He will draw near to you. Sometimes I think we feel like, you know, God, if you show up here, then I'll respond. But from James' perspective, he's saying don't invert that. If you want to experience intimacy with God, you've got to draw near to him, and then he will what? Draw near to you. Don't invert it. There's no doubt that the Lord is the hound of heaven. There's no doubt that he's gracious. There's no doubt that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But still, intimacy in relationship, just as the basic principle, relationships 101 doesn't happen unless you make a move. You can't have a close relationship with a friend or a spouse or someone you want to get to know unless you make a move toward intimacy, unless you draw nearer to them, But when you draw near, he'll draw near to you. He says, come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. He bids me come to a throne of grace to receive mercy. He says, come, come. But if I don't respond, then I'm probably not going to experience closeness with God. But if I draw near, he will draw near. Here's where we get into the book of Frank. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. You can think of cleansing your hands as the outward washing. And, of course, ceremonial washing was very important in approaching God in the uh, Old Testament, right? And purify your hearts. That's the inside, if you will. And then James says, you double-minded. He's come full circle. He already said that there, in James 1.5, take a peek. He said, look, there are some of you uh, who are lacking wisdom. Look at James 1.5. And God will give generously to you, but you need to ask James 1.6 in faith without doubting, for those who doubt are like the surf of the sea, driven by the wind, let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1.8 being what? A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James 4, if you go back to verse 8, this is a uh, seamless letter. James is picking up things he said earlier. And he's saying, look, if you want to overcome the problems in the fellowship and in your own life, James 4.8, You've got to purify, you've got to wash your hands, cleanse your hands, and purify your heart. When David had sinned with Bathsheba, and uh, he was in repentance before the Lord, that's what he asked the Lord to do. He asked the Lord to purify him. John eleven fifty five 55 says, Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near and many people went up to Jerusalem from the rural areas before the Passover to cleanse themselves ritually. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit and thus accomplish holiness out of reverence for God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean." So there are, in this particular fellowship, in this time, as James addresses them, he's not making a blanket statement. He's saying, look, if you've got a sin problem, then you've got to start with cleansing. You've got to ask the Lord to cleanse you, but you've got to be serious about washing your hands. How many of you like to make sure everybody's had their hands washed? Did you wash your hands? My parents and grandparents used to say that to me. Now I say that to my kid. You wash your hands. Sometimes you walk into the table. You wash your hands. (laughs) Right? That's sometimes what we just need to do. We need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I've gotten dirty this week. Have you ever been in a conversation? You're at work and Maybe bad language is flying and somebody tells a dirty joke and you're just like, or maybe you went in and you started to watch a movie and maybe you went with some people to this movie and the movie starts to play and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is going south quickly. I feel a bit soiled. I may need to be (laughs) re-baptized. Amen? This is the point. There's a painting in the cathedral of Lübeck, Germany, titled The Lament of Jesus Christ Against the Ungrateful World. The text reads, You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. And there are, of course, people probably in this early church who had a said faith. And so James is after them. And he says in verse 9, be miserable. That's wretched. Realize your own misery and repent. Mourn. That's the Greek word for grieve and weep it means to sob and wail aloud. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Now, some people read the book of James and say, okay, really, James? Are we supposed to walk around as these mourning? Is this where this idea came from, that nobody can smile in church? You got to walk in. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But look, there should be laughter in the church. There should be joy. Think about it. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, right? We go down those and we say, that's what I want. But these people weren't walking in the Spirit. And so James is addressing a church that's lost its way And saying, look, first got to mourn. If you want to get the fruits back in your life, mourn over your sin. Mourn over what you've allowed to happen in your fellowship. Mourn over what you've perhaps even perpetrated. The road to healing is repentance and brokenness. A contrite heart. The Lord will what? He will bless. He won't despise it. And so I think James is taking almost the position of an Old Testament prophet and saying, stop laughing at the wrong things. You need to mourn over what's taken place. Yes, this is filled with bite. To the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, there was sexual sin going on in the church. And he said, you've become arrogant. You've not mourned instead, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, in order that the one who has done this might be removed from your midst. There are things that we need to mourn over. Not everything is funny. I heard someone say, Lord, help me to laugh at the right things at the right time. (laughs) Amen. That's what we need to learn. There's a time to laugh and a time to mourn. There's some people who laugh at the wrong times, at the wrong things. And James addressing a church that's lost its way says, it's not a time to laugh. It's a time to mourn. Then you'll find the joy of the Lord and it will be your strength. I want to take you to one more parallel passage. It's found in Luke 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at Luke 18 and look at verse 9. Luke 18, 9. This is Jesus speaking, and here's what it says. <clears throat> He also told this parable Luke 18:9 to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Luke 18:10 Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax-gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax-gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, verse 13, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humble- humbled. But he who humbles himself shall be what? He'll be exalted. Do you think James listened to Jesus' sermons? I think so. Final verse is found in James 4, verse 10. Before we read it, I heard Jay Vernon McGee tell a story. He, say, he said, I observed a lifeguard once as he hit a drowning fellow with his fist and knocked him out. The lifeguard explained that the drowning man was struggling and that he could not help him until he gave up. McGee says, I think sometimes God gives us the fist so that we just give up and let him take over. Close quote. I think sometimes God just gives us the fist. You know what I'm saying? My beloved brethren. Shapoon. Or as someone put it, Sometimes God, God does a pow, and we say, wow. That's what the meaning of a powwow is, if you didn't know. <laughs> and then finally, James says, Humble yourselves, James 4.10, in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you, and he will lift you up. The old Maranatha song is apropos. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up higher and higher and he will lift you up. That's simple, but so difficult. Because if it was easy Everybody be doing it. If it was easy, James wouldn't wouldn't have written James chapter 4. But he says, if you want to be lifted up, humble yourself in his sight. So the rapid fire bullet points are submission, moral purity, internal devotion, guard your heart, repent daily, humble yourself in his sight, and he... Will lift you up, as Jesus put it in Luke fourteen eleven. Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled; he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered, "All of self and none of Thee." Yet He found me; I beheld Him bleeding on the accursed tree heard him pray, forgive them, Father. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, none of self and all of thee. Father, thank you so much for the book of James it is indeed the book of Frank <laughs> but it is so good and lord it's so freeing to know that you are so available to us and you want us to experience the joy of salvation the fruits of the spirit a love that maybe we've never known before but there is a key there's a doorway James has revealed and this early church no doubt was losing to the enemy they They had given him a foothold and the the fruit was bitter, at least in some cases. And there may be those of you who are here this morning and there's been some bitter fruit in your life and it's all about a lack of obedience. You just have to face it. It's all about the fact that you haven't done things God's way. But the good news is that the Lord is faithful. And he invites his people, even after discipline, even after maybe reaping something that's not too sweet, a remedy for the soul.